So if you go back to verse 18 down through verse 25, Paul, the Apostle Paul, makes it very clear that this world and our lives are marked by groaning. He says about the earth, about all of creation, about the cosmic order, that all of creation is groaning for renewal. Groaning for renewal. God made all things good. We broke every good thing God made. And as a result of what we broke and the brokenness that we live in, all of creation groans for renewal. All of creation cries out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Fix forever what has been broken. Take away sin and sadness and tears, and there will be, in the words of Tolkien, one day when everything sad will come untrue. And so creation groans for renewal. But he doesn't just stop with all of creation, the cosmic order. He goes on and says, you too, inwardly, groan for renewal. That our lives are marked by groaning, longing, knowing that something's missing, even though we're not exactly sure what that something is. And we spend our lives trying to figure that out. We actually, every single one of us, spend our lives, whether you've ever thought about it this way or not, the fact of the matter is we spend our lives trying to find the missing piece of the puzzle. And we try in a variety of different ways and down a variety of different avenues. We do it through our relationships. We do it through our work. We do it through our reputation. We do it, or the reputation we're trying to achieve. We, we do it by the image that we're trying to give off. We, we do it by trying to make money. We do it by uh, trying to raise children in a way that will make us proud. We, we do it in a variety of different ways, trying to find that missing piece of the puzzle. We all long for something better and brighter, and we're just not sure what's not there, but we know something's not there. And we spend our lives trying to find life. We are literally dying to live. Dying to live. All of us. And we'll do anything and we'll sacrifice everything if it makes us feel alive. Think about what we are willing to do. The things we're willing to sacrifice. We'll do anything. We'll sacrifice everything. To, if it makes us feel alive, every addiction known to mankind, okay? And I'm not just talking about addictions that you don't have. I'm talking about addictions you do have. I'm not just talking about drug addictions and um, addictions to pornography or alcohol or that sort of thing. Narcissism is an addiction. Workaholism is an addiction. Greed is an addiction. All of the addictions that are known to mankind are simply an attempt to find life and freedom. We're looking under every rock and behind every tree to find that something that's missing. And if it makes us feel alive for just a moment, just a moment, we conclude that it's, that it's worth it. I mean, we, we kill and we steal and we cheat and we lie and we pretend and we hide we give off impressions of what we want people to think about us. We do all of these things. In those ways, we hide, we, we cheat, we pretend. We do all of these things in an attempt to find life. We burden ourselves with self-salvation projects that promise life but only deliver death. They promise life, but they only deliver death. We try to satisfy our longings with things that do nothing but make our longings deeper. And this marks us. Paul says this marks us. And we feel it. We know it. In our most sober moments, in our most honest moments, we feel it. We know it. And we can even, if we're really, really sober, identify those things and those people that we're looking to, that we're depending on to provide for us that peace that seems so missing in a variety of different ways. There are, there are um, lots of reasons that people avoid church. And lots of those reasons are our fault. Okay, not my fault, your fault. Um, 
it's our fault inside the church people, Christian people, because we've given off this impression. It's sad to say, but lots of churches and preachers and Christians have given off this impression that church is for good people, moral people, clean people, competent people, people who pretty much have it all together. And there are a lot of, a lot of honest people out there who know that they're not good, who know that there's something seriously missing, that they're not clean, they're not competent, they know that they're dirty. They know that their hands aren't clean. And so there are lots of people out there who think we just don't fit inside church because church is all about a good person telling other good people how to be better people. And I've told you the story about my friend Steve Brown who said his dad, his father, who became a Christian right before he died, once answered Steve's question. Steve said, um, you know, why don't you go to church? And he said, I'm just not good enough to go to church. I'm not good enough. Church is filled with good people, and I know I'm not a good person. And so there are lots of reasons why people don't come to church. Oftentimes, weary and heavy-laden people, people who live in the crucible of ache out there, feeling the pressure of society to become, to forge their own identity, that sort of thing, do it right. They don't come to church because church has become a place where people are given a moralistic to-do list. Instead of church being the one place where weary and heavy laden people can come and find rest, what often happens is, you know, churches, preachers, what they give people is just a, a Christianized to-do list. A checklist version of the Christian faith that if someone really, really wants to be a victorious Christian, they have to go out and do all of these things to ensure that God will love them and accept them and approve of them and forgive them and all of those things. And so the focus of so many messages and so many church cultures is the focus of the Christian faith is the life of the Christian. That's a reason why people don't come to church. They, they, want, they want one spot one spot, because they're not going to get it out there, anywhere. Not going to get it at work. They're not going to get it most likely at home. They're not going to get it in their pursuits. They're not going to get it by watching television. They're not going to get it by reading articles. Everything out there is saying, do more, try harder. Everything, everything, everything out there is saying, you are what you do. You are who you can become. And what lots of people want is one place, one spot where they can come and be told, you are not what you do, you are what Jesus has done for you. And churches have not been really, really good at doing that. Um, and so that's a reason why people don't come to church. And we talk about those reasons a lot here. But there are other reasons that people don't come to church, reasons that are not our fault, okay? Um, there are lots of people who just can't stand being called a sinner, we, love, we, we live in this sort of self-esteemed, fueled culture where even though we are weary and heavy laden because we're constantly being told what to do and who we need to become in order to validate our existence and be happy and find peace and meaning and all of those things, um, there's a part of us that actually likes it because it promises that if we can just do these things, we can become everything we want to become. We can feel everything we want to feel. We can make ourselves alive by further, better, more aggressive living. And so they don't want to be told that they are broken train wrecks, that they're sinners, that they're far worse off than they think they are. And in fact, many are terribly offended by some guy like me standing up and saying, you're screwed. You're a mess. You're a complete train wreck. You're far worse off than you think you are. Who wants to hear that stuff? I mean, who, who out there who is building their lives on becoming something great and accomplishing something great and doing something great, who wants to hear that they can't do it? It strikes at the very heart of what they're building their identity on. And so there are lots of people who don't come to church because they don't want to be called a sinner I was telling the earlier service that 
um, I did, and I've, I think I've told you this before, uh, but I was being interviewed maybe two months ago, a month and a half ago, or something like that. Um, Non-Christian interviewer, television, and, um, and the interviewer asked me, she asked me if I would identify whether or not this or that was a sin. So she's just rattling off questions and, you know, is that a sin? Is this a sin? Is this, that, and the other a sin? And I'm like, yes, 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 definitely yes. Yes, yes. No, this isn't, just kidding. Yes, yes. And she kind of looked at me puzzled like, you are a dark person, a negative nihilist. That's what you are. And I looked at her and I said, listen, why do people have a problem calling themselves sinners. I mean, why? I said, listen, Leslie, that was her name. I said, I, I may look like I have it all together on the outside, okay? You know, I'm dressed, ready for the interview, got my makeup on. Um, I might look like I have a fresh haircut, you know, a uh, little tanned. Um, I may look like I have it all together. I may look like I've got things in order, but if you could see underneath the veneer and look inside my heart, I said, I am proud, I'm arrogant, I'm selfish. I come before everybody else. It comes natural to me. Um, don't laugh, comes natural to you too. <laughs> I know you. Um, I said, I'm just... You know, I'm, I am inside a complete train wreck. And I said, why do people have such a difficult time? I don't understand why people have such a difficult time owning imperfection. In fact, the first step to being free is to simply say, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm not pulling it off. I've never been pulling it off. I never will pull it off. The first step to freedom is acknowledging incapacity, inability. It's the first step to being free. Because then the pressure's off. <laughs> You're not having to forge your own identity. You're not having to generate your own meaning and worth through the various activities that you give yourself to. You're not, you're not having to prove yourself you can stop pretending. You can take the masks off. You can stop trying to prove to everybody out there that you're Superman or Superwoman, and you can do it all and do it all well. You can get off the treadmill, the treadmill of performance. You can step off. It's, it's finished. The pressure's off. It's the first step to freedom, acknowledging just how small you are, how unable you are, how incapable you are is the first step to freedom. I didn't say all of that, but I summarized it to her. And I said, why do people have such a hard time admitting that? I find unbelievable freedom in saying, I'm a train wreck. Unbelievable freedom, you know? Because I, I just go, man, it just, life is lighter and brighter when the pressure's off to do it all and be it all and do everything society tells me I need to do to make me feel like I matter. The pressure's, the pressure's off. So um, I just, I go, is it really that hard to believe that we're messed up people living in a messed up world with other messed up people? Um, is it really that difficult to believe? I mean, listen to how Paul describes life on this earth in verses 35 and following. Look at the words he uses. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, the sword. He goes on to say, we are being killed all the day long. Like sheep being led to the slaughter. Who doesn't feel like that? At least some of the time. Does a harsh word not feel like death? Does criticism not feel like a form of slaughter? When you come to terms with your own guilt and the pain you've inflicted on someone else with something you've done or failed to do, does it not feel like a little death? Have you not felt persecuted? 
misunderstood? Have you not, have you not divvied out persecution yourself? Have you not harbored bitterness and had to endure the slavery that accompanies that? Have you not been on the receiving end of fits of anger and malice and all sorts of those things, lies? This is what life feels like, Paul says. It's marked by groaning. The earth is groaning. The cosmic order is groaning. You are groaning. I'm groaning. Groaning is an inescapable part of our existence here and now. I mean, you don't, you don't have to be religious or come to church or believe in something like original sin to believe that you and everything around you is messed up. I mean, you don't, you know, original sin is the most verifiable fact in all of history. Just look around. I mean, you've got wars and you've got earthquakes and you've got tsunamis and you've got people in your life. You have to live with yourself, which is hard enough. You have to live with other people who are just as messed up as you are. You have to interact with colleagues and a boss and neighbors who are just as selfish as you are. You have to fall asleep at night knowing that you have failed or trying to convince yourself that you've succeeded, but not really believing it in the depths of your being. I mean, why is it so hard to believe that you and everything around you is messed up? Well, you do believe it. <laughs> I believe it. We try to silence it. We try to numb it. We try to, we try to make life noisy enough to where we don't feel it. We busy ourselves with things so that we don't have to face that dark reality head on. We find escape routes and places to hide. But if we're all honest, we all know and we can all admit that me... You and everything around us is messed up. I mean, think about it. Why are you in distress? Paul says distress is a part of life. Why are you in distress? Who? What has failed you? What, how are you feeling persecution? Who or what is persecuting you? Is a rebellious teenager persecuting you? Is a son or daughter who you haven't seen this Easter and you won't see next Easter and most likely for the next 10 Easter's because they can't stand you because of some mistake you made or some resentment they have towards you, does that feel like persecution? A failed marriage? An unresponsive spouse? I mean, how do you feel persecution? I mean, why are you in distress? In what ways are you in peril? How does peril mark your life, your existence? And then turn it around. And don't simply think about ways you've been on the receiving end of these things or ways you are experiencing these things, but turn it around. Who are you causing to be in distress? I mean, who feels distressed because of you? Something you've said or done or something that you fail to say and do. Maybe you're, maybe you're marked by a critical spirit, and you just can't seem to see anything but what's wrong, and the people around you feel beaten up. They just, they, 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 they couldn't get a word of affirmation from you if they gave you a million bucks. You're just not even constitutionally capable of doing it. How, how are the people around you feeling in distress? How, who are you persecuting with your anger, your bitterness, your silent treatments? your ambition, your willingness to do whatever it takes to get what you think you need in order to be happy. And if that means stepping on this person, that person, or every person, you're willing to do it. I mean, who's feeling that from you? Who are you persecuting? I mean, who, who really feels like they are in peril because of you? People do. Trust me, people do. So it's not just how am I receiving these things, but how am I dishing these things out? I mean, in what ways am I dishing these things out? I mean, we would all agree that things are messed up. When I start putting it the way that I've put it, I think most people, unless you're dead or dumb, uh, would start going, okay, 
I get it. When you put it like that, I do look at myself and I look at my spouse and the people around me, my kids. I look at society. I look at this world and I go, things are broken. Things are broken. I'm broken. He's broken. She's broken. That's broken. Um, I mean, I think we would all admit that. Here's the problem. Accusation, which is the posture that says you are messed up, comes so much more naturally to us than confession, which is the posture of saying, I am messed up. Accusation comes much more naturally than confession, comes much more natural to blame our emptiness, that feeling of nothingness, that something's missing, our groans. It's so much easier to blame our groans on someone out there, something out there, instead of me. You don't have to teach people to accuse. I mean, you saw this in Genesis chapter 3. You know, I mean, what happens when God says, what would you guys do? I mean, I gave you the world, and I put one thing over here to protect you. And you believe the lie of the devil that you could become like God. What were you missing that would cause you to believe what he said and give in to that, that temptation? And what does Adam say? He goes to Adam. What does Adam say? That woman you gave me? Okay. I mean, <laughs> the first year I was married, Kim and I got married 21, first year I was married, I mean, that was the line that came out of my mouth more than any other line in my prayers. <laughs> that woman you gave me, okay? <laughs> that woman you gave me? Um, and then what does Eve say? Well, <laughs> you know that serpent? Well, <laughs> I mean, the ser that snake? I mean, this, is, this stuff comes natural. We don't have to be taught to accuse, to blame someone else, to try to find an answer to our misery by pointing the finger, to try to answer our groanings by blaming someone or something. I know why things aren't right in this world. Barack Obama, okay? <laughs> really? The world was messed up before Barack Obama, and it will be messed up long after Barack Obama. He's not the problem, all right? It's so easy for it. So, we laugh because it's so stupid. I mean, we really do this kind of stuff. I, I don't know if I've ever seen Christians happier than when George W. Bush was elected president. Like, the kingdom of God is flying in on Air Force One. And Christians weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth as if the devil won the tug of war match against God when Barack Obama was elected. And I'm like, what does it matter with you people? Really? Presidents come, presidents go. Leaders come, leaders go. People in your life come, people in your life go. That's not the problem. You're the problem. I'm the problem. We are the problem. That's the problem. But it comes so natural for us to go, you're messed up. We're, we're fine by saying, it's all messed up. But it doesn't come natural for us to say, and I'm the problem. Remember that, um, I think I've shared this before, G.K. Chesterton, who was a uh, British journalist and writer, uh, from the 1800s and onwards said, um, there was an article written in the London Times and it was simply, the uh, name of the article was simply, what's wrong with the world? And the writer of this article uh, proceeded to describe what he believed was wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton read it and wrote a letter to the editor and simply said this. It's exactly what it said. He said, um, to the editor, in answer to your question, what's wrong with the world, the only answer I can give is I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That's it. Well, that doesn't come natural to us. Accusation does. Think about your relationships. When they're not happy, whose fault is it? Well, it's, it's hers. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Hello? It's hers. You know? Um... 
when something's not going right, whose fault is it? Well, it's theirs, of course. I mean, everyone who's smart knows it's theirs. Definitely not mine. It comes natural. Um, it's so much more natural for us to blame the way things are on others rather than ourselves. Francis Spufford, who I'm going to read a quote from at the end of this service, that is just mind-blowingly beautiful. But before I read that one, let me read this one. In his book, Unapologetic, which is a fantastic book, Francis Spufford, he cusses in the book, okay, because he's British and he says, I don't really understand sort of the American Christian fascination with not cussing. These are the words we use just drinking coffee with our friends, okay? So if you're offended by cussing, um, just get a black pen and every time he says a bad word, just mark it out. But read the book, okay? Francis Spufford in his book, Unapologetic, knowing, knowing that nobody will tolerate being called a sinner, simply calls sin, I love this, the human propensity to mess things up. He doesn't say mess. So you'll have to get your black pen out for that one. But he calls sin the human propensity to mess things up. He's like, he's like C.S. Lewis with a mouth on him, okay? If you can picture that. Um, but listen to what he says. He says about knowing that nobody likes to be called a sinner in our day. He says, what we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive role. We're not just talking about that. Some of us are willing to at least admit that, you know? I mean, at least we're, we're okay, I, I, yes, I mean, I do, I fail to do some things that I should do, you know? Sorry, who's perfect? He says, what we're talking about is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive role. It's our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff like moods and promises and relationships we care about and our own well-being and other people's well-being. It's not just the passiveness, but it's the activeness of our messed upness. You know, it's, it's breaking stuff. We, we just, we break stuff. You know, kids just break stuff because it's fun. We never really grow out of that. We just break bigger, more important stuff when we get older. We just do. You know, instead of just throwing a plate on the ground, which some of you do and you need to get your temper under control. Um, plates are expensive these days. Um, you know, we may not break stuff like that. I had a Stretch Armstrong. Do you remember Stretch Armstrong? Remember, anybody remember Stretch Armstrong? Okay, good, good, good. Um, so I got a Stretch Armstrong for Christmas. My mom's here, she can testify to this. I got a Stretch Armstrong for Christmas one year. I was probably like four. And Stretch Armstrong was like a stretchy doll. Okay, he wasn't, he was like <laughs> um, blonde hair, shirtless, muscular, like yellow underwear. Um, and he was just, you know, and you could stretch him, okay? So my brother could hold one arm and I could hold the other arm and we could walk in opposite directions and then we let him go and stretch Armstrong just whoop, goes right back, you know? Well, I just couldn't take it anymore after the first day, Christmas day. I had to know what made Stretch Armstrong stretchy. I mean, I was a four-year-old, five-year-old, and I just had to figure it out. What makes him so stretchy? This is so cool. And so I snuck into the kitchen and I grabbed a pair of scissors, and I mean, I cut him open. <laughs> I cut his arm off. I cut his right arm off. And I'll ne it's like it happened yesterday, red jelly. Like they even made the inside of him look like blood. It was unbelievable. Like they knew a kid like me would do that. Um, and red, like a red jelly substance just poured out. And I burst into tears. I've ruined Stretch Armstrong. I'm like, I didn't, just this natural propensity to break stuff. You know? I mean, if you're a parent, you know this is true, and your kids are small. You just break stuff. They rip stuff. They punch stuff. You know? They just do destructive stuff, especially if they're boys. Especially if their names are Gabe, Nate, or Preston Pacienza. <laughs> 
They just break stuff. I love it. Yeah, I love boys who break stuff. I cheer them on. Break it more, you know? Mothers don't like that stuff as much, but guys, when their sons break stuff, there's something inside of them that's like, well, we never really grow out of breaking stuff. Broken people break stuff. It just comes natural to us. But we break big stuff. We break relationships. We break moods. We break people. We break big things. We persecute. We kill. We lie. We steal. We cheat. We break. So when you resist the idea that you're a sinner, <laughs> just remember Paul's words in Romans 7. The things, that I w- the things that I know I should do, I don't do. And the things that I don't do, those are the things I know I should be doing. And I am this, I'm just internal conundrum. I'm in constant conflict with myself. I mean, I just, well, that's, it's because we're sinners. We sin against ourselves. We sin against other people. We're sinned against. I mean, we're, we're sinners. If, and if, if you don't find yourself described that way, the way Paul describes in Romans 7, if you read that and go, well, that doesn't describe me, you're not paying attention. You're just not paying attention. Remember I said a few weeks ago that I was at a conference back in February and I had finished speaking about just, you know, grace, surprise, surprise, and talking about um, how the law of God just breaks us so that we're set free from the pressure of thinking we can pull it off. And then God's grace comes in and rescues us and says, I know you're, you're far worse off than you think you are, but my love for you is infinitely greater than you could ever hope for or imagine. And so I talked about desperation and the gift that desperation is because it brings us face to face once again with our deliverance. And so there was a question and answer period. And um, I was up there with all the other speakers and we were all sitting at this table it's a long table facing the audience, and we all had these microphones on the table. And the first question that came from the audience was, what if you don't feel desperate? It was kind of addressed to me, but it was like, what if you don't feel desperate? And before anybody else could talk, I grabbed my microphone, leaned up, and I just said, you're not looking hard enough. You are. Um, and if you don't find yourself feeling desperation, or being described the way Paul describes in Romans 7, you're just, you're not paying attention. You're messed up. (laughs) So am I. I mean, even our best works, the things we think are most selfless, are tainted by at least impure motives. I mean, we're just, we're broken. Broken people break stuff. Well, that's our problem. That's our problem. Well, if that's our problem, I don't know about you, but I want an answer. And I don't want an answer from you because you're going to come up with the same answer I give you. Answers I've tried to give myself. I need God's answer to this. I need someone above and beyond bigger, stronger than me, smarter, wiser, to give me an answer, an answer from the outside. I need God's answer. Well, what does he say? That's hilarious. That's okay. I'm going to send you a new ringtone, by the way. I'm going to send you a new ringtone. I've got one I downloaded yesterday. (laughs) Smoking. Okay. What does he say? What's God's answer? Beginning in verse 28 of Romans 8, what does he say? You're groaning. Creation's groaning. Or our lives are marked by groaning. What does he say? One of the most famous verses in all the Bible. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good in light of your messed upness and your brokenness and the messed upness and brokenness of this world and the people around you. Somehow, somehow, because omnipotence has servants everywhere, somehow your groanings 
your longings and your messed upness, the pain you inflict on others and the pain you experience from others is being weaved into such a perfectly good tapestry that one day you will look back and say, perfect. All things. All things God is working together for good to those who love him. All things. To those who are loved by God, there is no wasted pain. There are no wasted groans. I mean, it's, it's all working out for good. And then he goes on to describe some of the good, the mind-blowing eternal good that he gives us for free. Look at what he says. For those whom he foreknew, and that word foreknew does not mean simply knowing something in advance, like God stands above and beyond the corridor of time, I mean, above and beyond time, looking down the corridor of time, and he foresees certain things. It's not what it's saying. The word know in the Bible, if you go back, you can, the first instance of this, of this is if you go back to Genesis when the Bible says, and Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to a son named Seth. The Bible's not saying there, he knew something about Eve, and poof, she became pregnant. Knowing has a sense of intimate love. Intimate love. So when he says, for those whom he foreknew, it's those who he foreloved. Those whom he brought into existence to set his divine affection on. Brought you here to love you. Brought you here to love you. Fashioned you before the foundation of the world to love you. And what, is that, what does that look like? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That we would be locked in Christ, that we would be adopted sons and daughters. For those whom he foreloved, he predestined. This is, the, this is the destination of these people that he decided a long time ago. Adoption. Family membership in the family of God. A membership that can never, ever be forfeited or sacrificed, no matter what you do, which he goes on to say in a few moments. And then look at this, verse 30, what theologians call the golden chain of salvation. And notice that it is God's work from beginning to end. There are no human fingerprints on this chain. Zero. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Beginning to end, eternity past, eternity future. What is love? How does this love that he describes, how does it take shape? Long before you were born and long into eternity. It is all God's work. The rescue is God's and God's alone. You are the rescued. He is the rescuer. And he doesn't need your help. There's nothing you can do anyway. I've said, how many times have you heard me say, the only thing you contribute to your rescue is the sin that makes a rescue necessary. There's no contribution here. There's no human fingerprints on this chain. This is God saying, I will save. And there's nothing you can do about it. I will set free. And there's nothing you can do about it. I will rescue. Tough luck. Nothing you can do about it. All you have to do is sit back and be rescued. Which is very difficult for us, isn't it? My dad used to say that sometimes, most of the time, it takes much more humility to receive a gift than to give one. No, 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 please, please, please. Sounds humble. Very proud. I don't need it. I'm fine. I got it. Saying, yes, Thank you, is, is an admission of need and brokenness. And then this is where it gets rocking and rolling. 
in verse 31 and beyond. So he says, in light of all this, Paul says, in light of this, foreknowing, foreloving, being predestined to adoption, rescue from start to finish, brought you into this world to love you, working all things out for good. Let me explain what that good is. All this stuff, in light of all of this stuff, which may seem simply conceptual at this point, now he starts bringing it down into the existential reality of our lives, what we actually feel as we live our life. He says, so what shall we say to these things? What shall we say? What, what can we say in light of all of this glory? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us, he says. I mean, I'm against me. You're against me. They are against me. The man is against me. Big brother is against me. Everything's against me. It's the way a groaning life feels. And he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then look at what he says. He says, let me prove it to you. Let me show you that I'm not just spouting off theological triteness here. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. Whatever your heart longs for. The groanings underneath the groanings underneath the groanings will be forever silenced and satisfied. Because of what you do? No, because of what God has done. And then verse 35, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? To those whom God has loved, who's going who's to bring any charge against them? We accuse ourselves. We accuse others. Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. We live in a crucible of accusation, guilt, shame. And he says, who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? No one can accuse you anymore because you're locked in Christ. He was accused on your behalf. He was charged with a crime so that you could go free. You've been pardoned. So therefore, who will bring any charge against God's elect? And then these, these five words, these five words which will change your life. And I highly recommend getting it tattooed somewhere where you can see it, okay? It is God who justifies. It's God who justifies. We make life harder on ourselves because we desperately try to justify our existence, prove ourselves, validate ourselves. Life is hard and we feel the pressure and the weight and the burden because we're trying to justify ourselves. You may have never put it that way before. That might not be the way you say it, but that's the way you and I live. And when he says, it is God who justifies, pressure's off. Get off the treadmill. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Who's going to condemn you? Paul's just said in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore none, none. So who's going to condemn you? He was already condemned for you. There's no such thing as double jeopardy in God's economy. The crime was paid for. Your crime was paid for. Your pardon was secured. He was charged. He gets charged, you get justified. That's the deal. That's, that's the way God's currency works. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, what theologians call the Christ's session, that he is currently at the right hand of God the Father, 
having risen from the dead, and he's, he's in session for you. <laughs> he's interceding. He's, he's pleading his blood perpetually on your behalf. It's been paid. It's been paid. It's been paid. He's constantly interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or all of the groaning and all of the messed upness or all of my badness and all of my guilt and all of my shame and all of her guilt and all of his shame? All of the difficult circumstances, all of that stuff. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He says, you know, I mean, who's going to do it? Should... Um, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, this, the hunger, hunger and longing, nakedness, our sense of vulnerability and aloneness? What about danger? I'm afraid things won't turn out the way they should. I'm afraid that I will lose control, that I have to get everything right or else, or else, or else. Will danger, will that separate you from God's love? What about sword, pain, death? The death of others, pain, agony, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, whatever. Will any of those things separate us from the love of Christ? Then he answers in verse 37, no. <laughs> Simple answer, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, don't read that verse like a typical American would. So tired of men's conferences with the big banner that says, more than conquerors. Like it's a gathering of supermen. If you just put your mind to it, you can find and live the victorious Christian life. Sick of that. <laughs> it's not the, what that verse means. Notice what it says. More than conquerors. And they stop. They stop. More than conquerors. For, I, I don't. And he goes on and says, um, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are the conquered. He is the conqueror and his love has conquered all so that we can now live in a cage of righteousness, so that we can now live with an irremovable suit of forgiveness, a straitjacket of forgiveness that we can't take off if we try. We can't. We're bound, tied up in the forgiveness and love of God because of what Jesus has done for us. And then he says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth. And then he just goes, I can't think of anything else, so I'm just going to say it, nor anything else in all creation. I've said that my creative juices are drying up. I've, I've said everything I know what to say. I mean, uh, death nor life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, whatever, goodness, badness, you name it, nor anything else in all creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Zero can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's God's answer. Okay, you've got, that's God's answer to the groaning problem. You've been set free. You will continue to groan, but in your groaning, remember that you are free and loved and accepted and approved, not just in your selflessness, but in your selfishness, not just in your goodness, but your badness. You're set free, you're approved, you're loved, you're justified. And nothing can separate you from that. You see, it's important to understand that this love of God that comes our way is Jesus. Jesus is God's love language. Everything we need to know about God's love, we see in, in a person, not a concept, not a construct, not an idea, but not in some category, some theological category. It's, it's a person. The love of God for sinners is a person. Um, let me read you this. 
from Francis Spufford's book, Unapologetic. He's describing this person. He's doing a remarkable job, does a remarkable job of um, showing you that God's love is not an abstraction. And so he's describing Jesus. Just look at him. There's something disgusting about him, don't you think? Something that makes you squirm inside as he's being beaten and crucified. He's so pale and sickly looking. With that dried blood around his mouth, he looks like a pedophile being led away by the police. He looks like something from under a rock, as if he doesn't deserve the daylight. He's a blot, a bloody blot on the new day. Someone kicks him as he goes by, and whoops, down he goes, flat on his nose with the cross pinning him like a struggling insect. Jesus is a joke. He's less a messiah more a patch of something nasty on the pavement. And as he struggles on, he recognizes every roaring, jeering face. He knows our names. He knows our histories. And since, as well as being a weak man, he is also the love that makes the world, to whom all times and places are equally present, He isn't just feeling the anger and spite and unbearable self-disgust of this one crowd on this one Friday morning in Palestine. He's turning his bruised face toward the whole human crowd, past, present, and future, and accepting everything we have to throw at him, everything we fear and know that we deserve ourselves. The door of his heart are wedged open wide, and in rushes the whole vile and roiling tide of cruelties and failures and secrets. And this is what he says. It's what Jesus says to you. Let me take that from you, he is saying. Give that to me instead. Let me carry it. Let me be to blame. I am big enough, I'm wide enough, I'm the father who longs for every last one of his children, I'm the friend who will never leave you, I'm the light behind the darkness, I'm the shining that your shame cannot extinguish, I am the ghost of love in the torture chamber, your torture chamber. I am change, I am hope, I am the refining fire, I am the door where you thought there was only a wall, I am what comes after deserving. I am the earth that drinks up the blood stain. I am gift without cost. I am, I am, before the foundation of the world, I am. That's love personified in a person, not just some concept, not some abstraction. Jesus meets our sin with his salvation, our faults with his forgiveness, our guilt with his grace, our human propensity to mess things up with his loving determination to clean things up. It's where God meets us at the bottom, where it's dark and nasty and where you are dirty. That's where God comes. He is big enough He is wide enough and he gives and gives and gives and gives to bad people because bad people are all that there are. And today he is alive and he's keeping his promises and he's saying to all of us, let me sit inside your silence. Let me ease the hurt that you hide. It's an invitation, it's a declaration. It's a promise.